to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. Luke, chapter 2. Luke seeks to give us the timing by reference to historic events. In chapter 2, he seeks to give to us the timing of the birth of Christ. In chapter 3, he gives us the timing of the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. In giving to us the timing of the birth of Christ, it came to pass in those days there went forth a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and this taxing was first made when uh, Cyrenius, or Quirinius, according to the Latin, was the governor of Syria. Now, there are those who imagined that the Bible had a discrepancy here because according to the historic documents that we had, Quirinius was governor of Syria in about 7 to 9 AD and that would put it several years after the birth of Christ. It does seem that when Justinian, the Roman emperor, ordered a new calendar uh, to date history from the birth of Christ, the Roman calendar originally dated history from the birth of Rome. But Justinian ordered a new calendar to be made that would... uh, put history uh, as the birth of Christ would be the focal or the center point of history rather than the birth of Rome. But it seems like the man that he hired to do the job did make a mistake so that curiously and interestingly enough, Jesus was probably born about 4 B.C., Uh, But this was just the mistake, not of the Bible, but of uh, the man hired by Justinian to create a new calendar. Uh, But the situation with Quirinius, the governor of Syria, was considered by Bible critics as one of those flaws of the Bible, and they pointed out as, as it being... A a flaw, but 
Interestingly enough, recently records have been found to show that Quirinius was actually governor of Syria twice. And the first time he was governor of Syria was quite a bit earlier than the second in 79 uh, AD. So that uh, the discrepancy has been cleared up and uh, they realize that uh, he was the governor of Syria even earlier. Uh, so uh, again, the critics fall and the Bible stands. But that's been going on for years. Caesar Augustus, his real name was Caius Octavius. Caius Octavius was the first Roman emperor. He was a grandnephew of Julius Caesar. He took the name of Caesar by adoption, and the name uh, Augustus was given to him by the Roman Senate. Rome had been ruled pretty much by uh, there were several gem generals who were called the imperators, plural. He became the first imperator, singular, and spelled with a capital I. Gradually, the power of Rome was vested into one man, a singularly astute man, Caius Octavius, and the Senate, in trying to give to him a title, first of all suggested that he be called the King of Rome. But he rejected the title of King. He said that it sort of signified a temporary reign. So they suggested that he be called the Dictator of Rome. And he said, no, that doesn't signify enough. So they finally came up with this title, Augustus, which comes from the Latin augur and suggests a divine type of a title. And it was sort of the beginning of the claim of the Roman uh, Caesars to deity. And uh, gradually... Uh, the rulers of Rome claimed deity and uh, the uh, requirement was to say that Caesar is Lord. And many of the Christians were martyred because they would refuse to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. And when facing execution, they could uh, escape execution by just saying Caesar is Lord but they would refuse to do so and thus were stretched uh, to death on the racks or uh, burned at the stake and the various methods put on the crosses by which the Roman government tried at first to extinguish the light of Christianity. Now, we begin to realize a little bit of the power of this man. There went forth a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And then the little, this taxing was first made the timing of it, but verse 3 picks up the thought again, and all went to be taxed. Interesting. Here's a fellow sitting in Rome. He has now achieved such power. He was 
working towards hegemony. He is able to make a decree and all of the world immediately bows to that decree. There went forth a decree from Caesar Augustus, all the world should be taxed, and all went to be taxed. I mean, think of that kind of power. One man. There's no appeal, no court of appeal. Caesar has spoken, and the world must bow and submit to the decree of Caesar. And we read, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. It seemed like this enrollment for the taxation had to be done in your home area. And thus they had to return to Bethlehem in order to be enrolled for this taxation. It's interesting that they have found some papyri in Egypt that speaks of this taxing. And in Egypt, uh, of course, which was also under the Roman rule, they also had to go, and it was specified in the papyri that was found that they had to return to their home villages for the enrollment for this taxation, confirming the biblical account here. So Joseph went from Galilee, the city of Nazareth. It's about an 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But that isn't on a freeway in an air-conditioned car. That's at best on a donkey or walking. And can you imagine Mary in the advanced stages of pregnancy making that 80-mile arduous journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem just because some punk in Rome wants everybody to be taxed. And, and there was no appeal. They couldn't go to the district governor and say, but she's pregnant, you know, and she's going to have a baby any time, you know. There was, there was no appeal. Caesar said it. You've got to do it. Caesar reigns. Caesar rules. So Joseph went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, anybody in their right mind would it make that trip under those conditions, those primitive conditions in that state of pregnancy? Now, that's looking at it from the human side. But there's another side to this story. This other side begins 700 years earlier. It begins with a prophet whose name was Micah, and he was prophesying concerning the Messiah that was to come. And his prophecy, he said, And thou, Bethlehem of Judea, 
Though thou art little among the provinces of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he who is to rule my people Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. (laughs) And when I read the prophecy of Micah, I suddenly realize that this little fellow sitting on the throne in Rome isn't what he thinks he is. The autocratic ruler of the world, all he is is a puppet in the hands of God. Because you see, God had a problem. The child was to be born in Bethlehem in order to fulfill the prophecies. And he knew that they wouldn't go voluntarily to Bethlehem at this stage of her pregnancy. So he sort of taps Caesar on the shoulder and says, hey, order a taxation. Everybody to return to their home city to be taxed. And so he gives the decree and God gets Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in order that the baby might be born in Bethlehem. Man may think he rules, but God overrules. And so he went with Mary, his espoused wife, who, and delicately described and beautiful, being great with child. Now you all understand what that means, don't you? I know you mothers especially do. And so it was that while they were there, The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, don't think of the inn as a Motel 6. (laughs) It was not a hotel. Even the inn itself was just an enclosed area, a shelter. Walls, a place for the animals, and uh, it, it was shelter from the winds, but there was not even place there for them. And so Jesus was born in, and, and placed in the manger because there was no room for them even in the end. There is sort of a beauty and a pathos to this all in, in the, wrapped up. It was almost a prophecy of, of his life. It seems like there wasn't room in the earth for him. We see that There was surely no room for him within the religious system of the day. They were upset with him. And throughout his life, it seemed to be the story of his life. No room for Jesus. And unfortunately, it continues to be the story in many lives where people are unwilling to make room for the Savior. So born there and placed in the manger. Verse 7, the 
text would seem to indicate that she was alone perhaps not even a midwife to attend her for she brought forth her firstborn and she understood wrapped him in the swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no room in the feeding trough there was no room in the inn and there were in the same country shepherds who were abiding in the field keeping watch over their flock by night this would probably preclude december as being the time of the birth of christ our christmas correlates more with the pagan celebrations of the winter solstice the roman saturnalia than it does with the birth of christ it's more or less an adaptation by the church of a pagan holiday christianizing it and saying well we'll celebrate the birth of jesus on this date just when jesus was born we do not know for certain there are many who suggest that it was perhaps in the early part of october it is very possible that in god's design that he was born perhaps during the feast of trumpets that would be quite significant we do know that other events of the life of christ coordinated with the feast of israel we do know that he was crucified on passover and we do know that the holy spirit descended upon the disciples on the day of pentecost and thus it is quite possible that on the other major feast tabernacles or trumpets the blowing of trumpets or perhaps even on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, our Savior was born. Uh, that, would, that would seem to fit more with the pattern that God established because when Paul talked about how that uh, uh, they had their fast, their new moons, and the keeping of the Sabbath days and so forth, he said, these all were a shadow of the things to come the substances of is jesus these things only were pre-shadowing the coming of jesus foreshadowing so um shepherds watching their sheep some have suggested that these were the temple shepherds not ordinary shepherds but they were watching the sheep that were used in the temple sacrifices every morning and evening a lamb had to be offered on the sabbath day several lambs offered uh, on of course uh, the day of passover many lambs day of atonement and other feast days there were many lambs that were offered so that during the course of a year over a thousand lambs and thus uh, they had uh, the temple shepherds that raised lambs specifically for the purpose of sacrifice uh, lambs that had extra care because 
they could not have a spot or a blemish and be used in temple sacrifices. Uh, so there is that speculation that they were temple shepherds. We don't know, but if so, uh, it, it lends a beautiful touch to the story. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Now, it would appear that God had given to Gabriel uh, the charge of overseeing the events of the Messiah's coming into the world. Some 500 years earlier, Gabriel had appeared to Daniel and had told him the very time that the Messiah would come. It would be related to the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of the Messiah would be 483 years. Daniel wrote about that. It was the angel Gabriel that we found last week in chapter 1 appeared to Zacharias as he was ministering in the temple, informed him that his wife Elizabeth was to have a son in her old age who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. It was Gabriel that then appeared to Mary and let her know that God had chosen her the special instrument to be the human instrument of bringing his son into the world. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that it was Gabriel that appeared to the shepherds, but <laughs> I'll lay odds when we get to heaven, we'll find out it was. <laughs> the angel of the Lord. And I, I believe that that particular angel of the Lord was indeed Gabriel. And he came upon them. I think that having accomplished his job, the child is born, is swaddled safely there in the manger. And I think he's got to tell somebody, anybody. And it's night, everybody's asleep. He sees the flickering light of a fire out there in the fields near Bethlehem. He goes out and finds the shepherds and makes the announcement to them. Anybody, I got to tell somebody that this event is too, too glorious to hold. And so the glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, the gospel. And it is the Greek word for gospel. Good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, not just the Jews, but to the world. The gospel is for the world, for all who believe. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah. The Greek word Christos is the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. And the word Lord is kurios, which also is the Greek word for the Jehovah or Yahweh of the Old Testament. Savior, which is the Messiah, the Lord. And this shall be the sign. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host who were praising God. And they were saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We are told in the prophecies concerning Jesus, the Messiah, that if the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Now, that has not yet been fulfilled. When the angel Gabriel told Daniel of the coming of the Messiah, and told him of the things that would transpire through the Messiah, making an end of sin, reconciliation for iniquity, fulfilling the prophecies, anointing the most holy place. We realize that Jesus fulfilled a part of those prophecies. But Daniel said the Messiah would be cut off, and truly he was cut off. He was crucified. But he is coming again. And he's coming again to fulfill the remaining prophecies. And when he comes again, there will be peace on earth. For one of his names is Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And the prophet again, another prophet declared, and there shall be peace like a river. Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, There is peace on earth in the heart of the believer tonight. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then the peace of God is keeping your heart and your mind. You have trust in him. You see, he made peace possible for you. Peace with God. And having peace with God, he also brings to us the peace of God that keeps and establishes our hearts. Now, there are many people who have peace with God, but they don't yet have the peace of God. You can't really experience the peace of God until you really understand and know the grace of God. That's why so often in in the New Testament we read, grace and peace unto you. But always grace first. Because until you know the grace of God and really experience and understand God's grace, you don't really have the peace of God. So the announcement, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem, which indicates that it probably, where they were probably isn't the traditional site of 
the shepherd's fields, if you go to Bethlehem today, they'll take you about three quarters of a mile away from uh, the Church of Nativity, and uh, they will show you a cave, and they'll say, uh, this is the cave where the shepherds were. Uh, but uh, let us go now, even unto Bethlehem would indicate perhaps that it was some distance away. And see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord our God has made known unto us. And so they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph, and the babe was lying in the manger. This is the sign, the angel said. You're going to find the babe wrapped in swaddling, and there he was. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Well, they went out and spread the news. What, the angel and the whole story. I would imagine that after they got the story out, there were probably a lot of houses that were open then to Mary and Joseph. And by the time the wise men came, uh, as much as a year or so could have passed uh, before the wise men came, our Christmas story sort of gets, you know, we see them coming to the manger and bringing their uh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But that came later, uh, maybe up to two years, because you remember Herod had all the babies killed from two years and under uh, in order to try and eradicate uh, the rival for the throne. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all of these things and pondered them in her heart. Don't you know that, that Mary <laughs> was as confused as possibly could be concerning this child and, and, and all that had been told her concerning the child? The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen that was told unto them. Now the eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, and his name was called Jesus. Under the law, the child was to be circumcised on the eighth day in order that he might have the mark of the Hebrew nation. God gave the right of circumcision to Abraham. It was a part of the Abrahamic covenant, and the sign of that covenant was circumcision, God's people. It was symbolic, the symbolic of cutting away the flesh. So it was symbolic of a nation of people who would be living after the spirit rather than after the flesh. And it became a very important rite so that if the eighth day would happen to follow, fall on the Sabbath day, they could go ahead and circumcise though as a general rule, any other kind of activity on the Sabbath day was prohibited, but circumcision was allowed because it was such an important rite. And so on the eighth day, the child was named when they circumcised the child. That was when he was given his name. 
And so they called his name Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So you remember the angel told Mary before he was ever conceived that she was to bear the son, call his name Jesus. So uh, the glorious name, Jesus. The Hebrew name is Joshua. And Joshua is a contraction of Jehoshua. Joshua, you remember, was the servant of Moses. And his name, given name, was Hoshea, which means salvation. But Moses renamed him. And Moses called him Jehoshua, which is Jehovah is salvation. It was then sort of contracted to just Jah-shua, for Jah is a contraction of Jehovah. And uh, it, there is no J sound in the Hebrew, so it gets a Y sound, and it would be Yahshua. His name implies his mission. Call his name Yahshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jehovah is salvation. And when the days of her purification, now some 33 days later, she would have to go through purification rites. And so having gone through the 33 days of purification, now if it's a girl, you have to go 66 days. But uh, for boys, it was... 33 days for purification rites. And then she would come to the temple uh, and offer the sacrifices that would then uh, allow her to again participate in the ceremonial worship in the temple. So uh, when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and as it is written in the law of the Lord every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord now originally this was the law of the Lord the firstborn male child was to be the priest Dedicated to the Lord, to the ministry, to the priesthood. Later on, this was changed. And it became the tribe of Levi that was chosen for the priesthood. And they stood in the place of the firstborn son. God's ideal and divine ideal was that the firstborn son always be the priest of the family. And... uh, so it, they are bringing him to present him to the Lord, the male child that opened the womb. He was to be called holy to the Lord. And to offer the sacrifice according to that which was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, 
This would indicate that Mary and Joseph were poor because under the law they were to bring a lamb. But in Leviticus 12.8, if they can't afford a lamb, then they bring two doves or two pigeons. And so the fact that they brought the two doves and the two pigeons uh, would indicate their poverty and would also indicate that the wise men had not yet come. You remember that the wise men brought the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and many believed that they brought sufficient gold to support Jesus through his lifetime. And, and that's how he was able to take a large company and, and travel around the country uh, in his ministry. Uh, because of the uh, gold that was brought by the wise men, that that was used actually uh, to uh, finance the ministry of Jesus. So their poverty, and so Jesus was born not in opulent <laughs> circumstances and surely not wearing designer clothes and, and all of this junk that... Uh, these people who try to excuse their um, lavish lifestyles uh, by claiming that Jesus, you know, was rich and so forth. Now, as they brought Jesus to present him to the Lord as the firstborn opening the womb, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, he is described as just and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. And also we are told the Holy Spirit was upon him, God's anointing of the Spirit. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. He, he had that revelation. You're not going to die before you have seen the Lord's Messiah. And he came by the Spirit. So he's a devout man and led by the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation." The angels declared, there is born this day in the city of David a Savior. You're to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And now this godly man, filled with the Holy Spirit, as he takes the child, said, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people. And notice the salvation is not just for the Jews. To light, to light, a light to lighten the Gentiles 
and the glory of thy people Israel. Jesus came to save the world from sin. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. I mean, again, here's Mary just, you know, marveling at the things which are said concerning her son. And Simeon blessed them, and he said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. And for a sign which shall be spoken against. This child set for the fall and the rising again. Israel fell. Jesus predicted it. He said that this temple was to be destroyed, not one stone to be left standing upon another, and the people were going to be dispersed throughout the world. The fall of Israel, that happened. But he is also set for the rising again. And that rising again, interestingly enough, has already begun. The nation of Israel does exist. You can't deny it. The rising again. And we have that glorious psalm, when the Lord shall build up Zion, then shall he appear in his glory. And so the birth of the nation of Israel and uh, the, the rising up again of the nation is one of the most significant biblical prophecies that we have. And uh, the Lord's coming is soon. But then turning to Mary, he said, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. Set for the fall. The Messiah was rejected. He was hung on a cross with the accusation, the king of the Jews. When Pilate washed his hands, said, I'm innocent of this just man's blood. See ye to it. They responded, his blood be upon us and our children. And that horrible proclamation was fulfilled. And Israel fell and for 2,000 years was scattered and dispersed throughout the world. And when Mary stood at the foot of the cross and saw her son hanging there, a sword pierced through her own soul. The suffering that she must have felt, knowing what she knew about Jesus, holding these secrets in her heart, knowing how the angel had told her, but seeing him despised and rejected and being ridiculed, don't you know that a sword did pierce through her own soul, even as this godly man predicted? And so a sword also shall pierce through, even as the sword pierced him, it also pierced through her own soul. 
that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. Now there was also a lady named Anna, which is the Hebrew Hannah, who was a prophetess. She was the daughter of Phanuel, which means the face of God, so probably had a very godly father. They were of the tribe of Asher, and she was of great age. She was 84 years old. She had lived with the husband for seven years, and he died, only seven years married, and he died after the seven years of marriage. And thus she had been a widow for many years. She was a widow of about 84 years old, and she departed not from the temple. I mean, she devoted her life to God. I mean, it was just a thing that when her husband died, she just at that point made a commitment and devoted her life completely to God. And she probably had little sleeping quarters there in the temple and probably had certain duties that she just fulfilled around the temple. She served God with fastings and prayers night and day. A woman of prayer, a godly woman, all of these years in serving the Lord. And she coming in that same instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spoke of him to all that were looking for the redemption in Jerusalem. Those people who were expecting God to fulfill his promises, those who were looking for God's redemption, she went around telling them about this child. And when they had performed all of the things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee and to their own city, Nazareth. Now, in the meantime, they had fled to Egypt and were in Egypt for about two years, uh, which Luke doesn't tell us anything. Matthew is the one that tells us that they had left. And rather than going immediately to Nazareth, they fled to Egypt. And it was not until after the death of Herod uh, the Great that they then returned and went on up to Nazareth. And in this first 12 years, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now that's all we know of the first 12 years of the life of Christ. We know of his circumcision on the eighth day, his dedication on the 40th day, and then we know that in the next 12 years, as he was growing, he was waxing strong in the spirit, he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. It would be interesting to have, a, you know, you'd like to know how he related to his brothers and what kind of a kid he was as he was growing up. Uh, there are books of the Apocrypha which have 
very fanciful stories, uh, a book on the childhood of Jesus, but exaggerated fanciful stories, you know, of healing little birds with broken wings and a lot of things like that. But uh, they're just, you know, fanciful stories. Uh, there isn't any basis of, of, of real background facts to them. Now his parents, and of course Mary and Joseph were godly people, living according to the law. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now it was required that uh, the adult Jews uh, attend the feast the three major feasts. If they lived a certain distance away, they didn't have to come to all three, but would have to come to uh, whenever they could. And so Mary and Joseph had made it a point, the Feast of Passover, and that would be the easiest feast to come to. In that uh, springtime, the weather is better during Passover to travel. It's not yet really hot. If you would come to the Feast of Pentecost, oh, a hot trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem uh, in June. It gets quite hot there. And also during the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, it's still quite hot. Uh, and thus they chose the Feast of Passover, and every year they would come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he probably had already been bar mitzvahed. Um, the son of the covenant or son of the law uh, because when he was 12 years old he was in the temple and uh, he was discussing the scripture with the teachers now that would not be allowed until he had gone through the bar mitzvah whether or not he was bar mitzvah in Jerusalem in the temple or in the synagogue in Nazareth we're not told but when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, some think that that's quite strange. How is it that, you know, he could stay back in Jerusalem and they not know it? Well, they traveled with, with family, with relatives. And you know how little 12-year-old boys are. You know, they, they have their own agenda. Uh, and uh, when I hike with my grandsons who are about that age, I mean, they go five times as far as I do. They're up the hills and down the hills. They're, they're always taking all of these side things, you know, and I just sort of keep plodding along on the path, and they, they keep crossing back and forth, and I see them, you know, on occasion. But you know that they're keeping an eye on you. And, and uh, so uh, traveling in, in large companies, uh, there would probably be uh, several hundred people who would be coming from Nazareth for the feast. And so the big company starts to move off and you just figure, well, he's with some of his cousins playing around and, uh, you know, come evening he'll find us. And uh, 
So when evening came and Jesus didn't show up, then they began to inquire among the relatives. You know, have you seen Jesus? No. Well, I thought he was with you. No, no, we haven't seen him all day. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and the feast. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 2 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May the Lord be with you and watch over you during the week, and may God keep you unspotted from this evil world in which we live. As Paul said to Timothy, my son Timothy, flee ungodly lust. There is so much to stimulate you in this world in which we live. To start to feed the mind and to lead it into fantasies of unrighteousness and unreality. It's so easy that our imaginations be directed toward evil and evil things. Keep your mind pure. Keep your heart pure. Walk with God in close fellowship. Give no place to the enemy. Walk in purity and righteousness in fellowship with God through Jesus. And thus may you have a glorious week walking in the Spirit. For they that are in the Spirit shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. May you be in the Spirit. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. It is my great pleasure to present Pastor Chuck's commentary on the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles is an open-ended book. Jesus continues, even to the present day, to work in the lives of people throughout the world through those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. This book also includes a special foreword written by Pastor John Corson. We studied the book of Acts, but we never saw the book of Acts. 
but we were seeing the moving of the Holy Spirit. Calvary Chapel family, may you always be known as a people who pray in Jesus' name, that it would be Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. May the Jesus movement continue on. To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, The Acts Commentary, please call the word for today at 1-800-272-9673 or visit us online to read a sneak preview of the book by visiting thewordfortoday.org.